mustache tails. Yeah! All right. Welcome to the first episode of Mustache Tales with Jay and Hayes. Our first guest is Kevin Heffernan. Wow. The, the, great, hey. uh, the great writer, director, actor from the hit comedy group Broken Lizard. This is an uh, honor. Yeah. First guest. So yeah. I first, Hayes, I first met Kevin. Actually, I heard about Kevin when uh, I was a freshman at Colgate University. And he was in the coolest dorm, right? You were in Andrews, right, right, Kevin? I was, yeah. That was a good dorm. Yeah, everybody was like, Andrews is the cool dorm. You know, I hung out at a cool dorm across the quad called East Hall, but I was actually living in a dorm called um, the Harlem Renaissance Center because they're like, <laughs> let's put all the dark people in the same spot and maybe they'll feel welcome. So I, I was hanging out up the hill at East Hall and everyone's like um, – you know, we were starting to sort of think about pledging fraternities. And so I, I kept hearing about this uh, Andrews crew. And uh, there was like a Boston guy and a Connecticut guy. Kevin was a Connecticut guy. And everyone's like, man, this guy's the funniest guy in the class. And when I heard that, I was like, yeah, bullshit. I'm the funniest guy in the fucking class. And so I, I heard about him a couple times. And I'm like, eh, I, don't, I probably saw him walking around. I'm like, yeah, look that funny. Uh, and then I met him for the first time in the foyer of uh, our fraternity house, Beta, when we were freshmen. And we're going around the, we were in a semicircle and we were all saying who we were. And I'm like, oh, there's that funny guy from Andrews, supposedly funny guy. And I'm like, I don't think he's, uh, whatever. And they were making fun of him. The pledge masters were making fun of him for eating too many potato chips or something. I'm like, yeah, you do eat a few too many potato chips. Uh, And then uh, eventually we became, you know, we were in the same pledge class and we became close friends. And I was like, this guy is funny. This guy is funny. In fact... There's empirical proof that he's funny because uh, senior year, uh, the the senior class voted uh, on the funniest people in the class. And Kevin won number one funniest in the class, and I won number two. Uh, yeah. And as a result, Kevin had to give the speech, and I got to get hammered. It's just because I'm, I was the fat guy. Like, I, I my freshman year, I my roommate, I kind of stumbled across – he had written a letter home to his mom, like a homesick letter. And I saw it on his desk and I picked it up and he was describing his roommates, you know, and uh, and at the end of it, he goes, and finally, there is a fat, jolly fellow from Connecticut that is my roommate. And you uh, feel the weight was your competitive edge. Was that Andrews Hall, they would have like an eating, they would have like a pie eating contest, you know, like that was like a freshman event. They would have like a, a pie eating contest and then you would you know, put your best pie eater up, you know? And so I remember all the dorms were standing around this field and it came time to decide who was going to be the pie eater. And then everyone turned, they looked at me. Like I was for some reason, visually the best pie eater that you could have. And I was trying to explain to them that it doesn't correlate, you know, like pie speed eating doesn't, doesn't correlate necessarily to the fatness of it. It's just that the way it is. And I fucking lost. I lost that pie eating contest. 
That's um, terrible. I love that you size him up. Your competitiveness, Jay, came out for humor and not toughness. Like you went into a new environment <laughs> and you're like, who's the funniest guy here? And then immediately you don't like that person and you start gunning for them. Sure. Most, most you know, guys, they get to a new environment. They're like, who's the toughest guy here? That's, that's what I want to take a shot at. And you go, you go, who's the funniest guy here? I'm going to beat him. And then there's an actual competition. And you lost it. That's right. I lost it. And uh, it's pretty incredible. I mean, also, you know, Kevin had a manager once um, and there was a little Hollywood craze going around. But everyone was, everyone's always trying to lose weight in Hollywood. Uh, and you somehow got in a conversation with your manager about losing weight. Do you remember what he said? Yeah, he said, don't lose weight. Uh, fat is funny and funny's money. <laughs> He's like, well, let's not get too thin, okay? Because fat is funny and funny is money. It does so much of the work for you. And, and you know, no, no concern for my health or my, uh, you know, well-being. When we started the group, uh, what happened was that that I was in a bunch of plays. I was in like Job, and I played Job in in Job. I was in like uh, you know Arthur Miller plays and whatever. Uh, and Kevin was... He's in the theater gang. I was in the, I wasn't in the theater group. I'd love to see your audition for, for Biff. <laughs> I played <laughs> Biff in high school. Uh, Everybody plays Biff. Yes. It's the so, one you want. So it was... Um, you know, I went to uh, Chicago uh, for a semester off, and I, and I got involved with the Improv Olympic, and Chris Farley was there at the time. And I came back to Colgate, uh, you know, bragging about how good I was at improv and how I knew this guy, Chris Farley, and now he's going to Saturday Night Live. I was like, I was like the king of Chicago, according to my telling. Uh, and I, and one of the guys who started the Kinetic Theater Group, who's now a writer on Succession, a guy named Jonathan Glatzer, he, he said, uh, he's, he was going to London for the semester and he said, hey, why don't you start that a comedy group? You were talking about Chicago and how much a big improviser you are. Why don't you start one at Colgate? And for my uh, theater group. And I was like, yeah, maybe I will do that, right? So the first guy I go to is Kevin Heffernan. And I walk into his room on the second floor of our fraternity house. And, you know, whatever, it's like a Tuesday night and he's just, you know, sitting there waiting for Wednesday morning. Uh, and I was like, hey, man. Staring at a wall. Yeah, staring at the wall. <laughs> letting time click away. Uh, and I was like, hey, you want, you want to start a comedy group? Um, uh, you know, like I did in Chicago. And he goes, comedy group? Why the hell we do a comedy group? And I'm like, I don't know. We'd be like, you know, like Chris Farley. He goes, he goes you know how cynical our friends are? They're just going to laugh at us. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. So I tell the guy, I'm like, nah, I'm not doing it. And he goes, what? Okay. So now the summer comes and he calls me from uh, New York somewhere. And he goes, man, I got three one-act plays. I need a fourth because I'm going to be in London, to keep this whole theater group going, do the comedy group. And I'm like, I will do the comedy group. I just come back from a Grateful Dead show where I'd tripped for four days in a row at, at Alpine Valley. So my head was a little soft, right? <laughs> and I call Kevin, and he's uh, at a dishwashing job in Nantucket, which he got fired from in a week, by the way, which he thinks is weightism. Um, 
uh, <laughs> uh, and I call Kevin and he's in his Nantucket fucking house. And I said, Let's, we're going to do the comedy group. And he goes, I already told you we're not doing the comedy group. We're not doing it. I'm not doing a fucking comedy group. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm never not doing a fucking comedy group. So I called the guy. I'm like, we're not doing a comedy group. So then now it's fall. And, and it's a, like a Monday night in the fall. We're in the fraternity house, senior year. I'm downstairs drinking. And the phone rings. And some pledge is like, hey, there's, there's some guy from London calling you on the fucking payphone. I'm like, ah, oh, great. So I pick up the payphone. He goes, you're doing the comedy group. It's a done deal. I need a fourth. It's a done deal. I'm like, all right, fine. So I walk up to Kevin's room. He's still looking at the wall two years yeah. later. Uh, or sorry, six months later. And I'm like, we're doing a comedy group. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. And he goes, fine, fuck it, I'll do it. And that's how we started. Then you got the other guys. You you all went over to the London show and you just started with a long form improv. <laughs> we <laughs> no plan. <laughs> well, we 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 put up signs and we we you know and and basically I went around like like the Magnificent Seven and walked around to the funniest people we knew because Colgate wasn't at the time a big theater group company play theater. There weren't a bunch of real funny yeah. theater people. There was no improv. So we just there found like- funny people. And said, do you want to put on a comedy show? And some people were like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm just a funny guy. I'm not going to do a comedy show. But enough people said yes. Uh, and, you know, four or five of us are in the group still. It's, the improv circuit almost replaced uh, graduate school for theater. People started going to like Groundlings and Improv Olympic and Second City right after college. Yeah. And that wasn't around when we were in school, it was just a rare art form. And then everyone started going like the theater would open in New York and all the kids from school would go there. They started putting out every college had an improv group. We had our own group, you know, so it was, I think a lot of kids go to New York, LA and they join those schools or whatever. We had our own, we had like nine people or whatever. We had our own little team and um, we had our own little improv school, I guess. Yeah. We started as an improv group and we were doing all these, all these like games and like long form Herald. And as you can imagine, there were nine of us in a room. The expert was me and I was the worst improviser in Chicago when I left. And I'm like, everyone's like, is this funny? And I'm like, I don't think so. Is this funny? I don't know. Is this funny? And we're like, this is not funny. And so we decided instead to switch to something we could control, which is sketch. Cause we were all English and history majors largely political science majors. And we're like, we can write 30 page papers. We can write a, how long is the sketch? Four pages. Okay, We can write that. And so we started writing these sketches and there was a need because the sketches had like elaborate costumes, like mermaid costume and banana costume. And an actor would have to change from one to the other to be in the next thing. And we're like, oh, we need a diversion. And so we started making these short films in between so that we could change from banana to mermaid. Uh, and plus, it was a little more like Saturday Night Live, which is really what we wanted to do. You're doing, and people are, t- it's a rep theater, essentially. You had everyone play different roles. Yeah. You would put up a show and change in between it. Did you have internal strife over who would play what roles? <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it, you're competitive with each other. I don't think so, did we? No, we, we just, we, you know, we, we had a, uh, we have a credo uh, in, uh, or a motto in, in Broken Lizard, which is, Somebody asks who wrote the joke, you say, we all wrote it. Uh, And so the concept is really like, look, we're all going to try to balance out, you know, we're all going to have enough funny parts. 
uh, and we'll just, you know, we just, I, I just sort of cast it at the end based on who could be an available for what scene and who wanted to do what scene. And then you start traveling. You don't start traveling with the film that you make until that was well after school. When you guys made a feature length film, it came off of those shorts. Yeah, we did shorts for, you know, a few years while we did stage shows in New York. And so, um, uh, and then we ultimately made like a half hour film. Jay went to NYU film school for a little bit, for a little while, like a summer type thing. And then, and then um, we just started making, we made like a half an hour film. And then, you know, we pushed until we made a feature. That was, and you were doing super 16. Like it was hard to make films. It wasn't an easy process. You were shooting. Well, it wasn't that day of video. You know, if you had a video, yeah. it was like a VHS camera where you put the VHS tape in the top of the camera and you carry it around like that. So we, were, right. we shot on 16 and then we shot our first feature on 35, which was you know a unique thing at that time because it was so expensive. Yeah, Clerks was had made it um, their thing for it was black and white sixteen because it was it was cheap. God, I remember the cruel New York Times review for Clerks. It said it said it's a great movie, but it looks like it was shot through a tube sock, um, <laughs> which is unfair. I mean, this guy's first movie. But uh, we, when we saw that, we were like, well, we don't want to look, we don't want people to think we look like we shot through a tube sock. So we're, we we really thought maybe the thing that'll knock us over the top will be that we're on 35, like a real movie. When I went to Los Angeles, I met a guy. Uh, he was shorter than me. He was five foot uh, four. His name's Jason Weiner. He was my best friend. Okay. We went out all the time together to bars. We'd run around. We had the same group of friends, kind of similar thing. We just were, were, you know, just running around out of work actors in LA. And he said to me, uh, I want to make a short film called the adventures of big handsome guy and his little friend. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's just, we're just going to tell the story of us going out. I go, Why? He goes, because you're out to have a couple drinks and I'm out to meet girls. And at the end of the night, you're just always ready to go home and I want to meet chicks. So we're going to make a film about that. Sounds like swingers. So we got it. It, it was right off. It was right after swinger. That was like a big thing. We want, we, and we were in all those bars. We wanted to, we wanted to romanticize those bars, but it was hard to make it look good. We couldn't shoot it on digital cause it looked like a video camera at the time. So we shot super 16. That was a huge expense for us at the time. And I entered a, uh, stand-up comedy competition in <laughs> LA. Like, okay. like with the, they started as like bringer shows where you'd have to bring like 15 friends yeah. to watch yeah. you do like four minutes of horrible comedy. Yeah. <laughs> and there were multiple rounds, but the guy hosting it was making a ton of money because he had all these LA comics that wanted to perform in front of people and you had to pay to do it. Yeah. So it ended up with a final show at the Friars Club. And if you won the Friars Club competition, you got $1,500. So the Friars Club holds like a couple thousand people. We have this big event. Weiner wants to make this film. We stack the entire audience with all of our friends and we, we stack the vote. It was, yeah, yeah. it was a corrupt thing. I win the stand-up comedy competition. I get the cash on stage and I'm ready to go right to the bar 
Weiner grabs the cash out of my hands and goes to the Federal Credit Union, Union of SAG and opens a bank account and we start raising money to shoot on film. Once we got the money together to make it, like friends and family, we raised, I think, like, you know, $22,000. And it took us a year and a half to write a 15-page script. Yeah. And then, and then we went and got our friends to be in it. And we went to the film festivals with this... Uh, 17 minute short film about a, a night out on the town of these two guys. He meets the love of his life and I essentially ruin it for him. Yeah. And for a year we drove the film around to these film festivals and then a network saw it, uh, Fox saw it and they ended up having us uh, make a pilot based on the short film. And the budget for the pilot was millions of dollars. <laughs> and like, it, like literally, they, like, they gave us like two and a half to three million dollars to make this 17. And we were only making six minutes more. Yeah. And there was a shot in the short film. We were at uh, Angel's Flight is this hill downtown. And it's got this crest. Yeah. And yeah. so we, we conceived of this shot where, because I'm taller, we're coming over the crest of the hill and you see my head first and then you see Weiner's head after mine. And I throw a, a can over my shoulder and as we're coming over the hill, he runs back and picks it up and throws it in the trash because uh -huh. he's the responsible one. Right. So right before we did this one take, there was a homeless guy feeding pigeons in the park. And I gave the homeless guy five bucks so he could have a bunch of pigeons at the base of the hill. So where we come over the hill in slow motion, you just see like this explosion of birds, like something, you know, you have to pay. It was a John, it was a John Woo. It was a John Woo shot. So we did that and it looked amazing in the short film on Super 16. So there I was standing on the same hill two years later with this huge network production and they wanted to recreate the pigeon shot that we had. And I look down at this pigeon wrangler who's hiding behind the hill with these cages of pigeons. And I go, Hey man, how much, how much does this cost? How much are you getting paid for this? And he goes, $17,000. And I go, I go, that's how much our whole film costs. So when we were coming over the hill on the pilot, he opens up the pigeon cages and like two birds flew yeah. out. Yeah, like we couldn't get any of them to come out, and it didn't go. Everyone liked the uh, everyone liked the short better. What ha so we, what happened with the? They didn't never pick it up. Yeah, we just got to make a pilot like wearing the exact same clothes, doing the exact same scenes in the pilot as we did in the short. Well, we had the same thing in the sense that we made a movie called Puddle Cruiser, which is a college movie. Went to Sundance, and then when it got to the point, uh, we had uh, I think it was NBC, right? That was interested in redoing it. And same exact situation, they bought it, we shot a pilot, but they thought that we looked too old. And so they made us recast the whole movie with guys that looked like us. And we shot a pilot of our, of our movie with a bunch of guys. With other guys? Younger That's guys like, that looked like us. With your pretty boy avatars? And it ended up being a funny thing because each guy had a guy that looked like them, you know? And uh, I remember being at the rap party and squaring off against my younger, fatter uh, version of myself and right. you know, drinking against him and that kind of stuff. You know? Kevin but, destroyed yeah. this guy in the drinking contest. Yeah, the poor kid was just an actor trying to like fit in and everyone was just pushing him to try to come up against the movie version, Kevin. And Kevin was a professional binge drinker at the time. Um, and he 
destroyed this young man and then and then paid the price himself. Um, ah, I love thinking there's a bizarro broken lizard group out there somewhere. Yeah, we shot it. We shot it and uh, we didn't go. It was the year that uh, it was the year that Freaks and Geeks came out, right? Wasn't that it? They, they got the slot. Yeah, that's right. And um, we didn't get picked up. They got picked up. So that was the pilot of Puddle Cruisers, yeah. and then you guys are like, "Fuck this! Let's go make another version of it with Super Troopers, where we'll play ourselves." Let's go make this. Let's go make a movie that we can act in. We're trying to be Monty Python, and so the idea, the whole whole concept of five of us writing a television show for five other guys or whatever it was, it's insane. Now that I worked on so much television, I'm like, that's not how you make a TV show. It's just not how it works. And by the way, you don't give like a bunch of 25 year olds, you know, 30, 50 million dollars for a season of television. I mean, we didn't even know how to do any of it. We were just like, ah. but ultimately um, they made the right decision and not giving it to us, I believe. Uh, and then we were like, well, we want to be Python. We got to make another movie. Um, and then, you know. Well, you're doing it on 30 you're doing it on 35 and you what do you rob a bank to get the cash or for super how troopers financing that yeah well what happened was um uh harvey weinstein was a big fan uh of the first film we made puddle cruiser and he almost bought it he almost bought it he almost bought it then we had screenings and he'd never show for the screening he'd only show up for um the comment after and then all the like we would do these we would do these sort of test screenings in Greenwich Village and be full of film students and the place is exploding with laughter. And he wouldn't come to that part. He'd just come to the part where the students talk about it. And the students would all see him in the room and they'd all become uh, you know, just Pauline Kale. They were all trashing the movie. I think that's part of his sentence was for not coming to the actual screening, part of the time he's doing right now. Uh, but uh you know, um, so, but he, he kept hearing how great we were. And he, then he saw the film on video and he's like, I love this movie. And I was like, buy it. And he goes, ah, I'm not going to buy it. Uh, he goes, I'll make a TV show. I'm like, we already tried that. So then he's like, basically says, why don't we make a new one? Um, and we were like, okay. And so his head of development or head of production, named Jack Leshner, said sat us down and we're like what should we do the movie about he goes that's your job you tell me he goes i don't give a fuck what you guys do because you guys are super funny you could make a movie about a cat in space for all i care and we're like okay so so we then decide together we're like he said we should do a movie about a cat in space let's do a movie about a cat in space and so we wrote this whole pitch called mickleberry comma, cat in space. And it's about the United States is going to send a cat into, I guess we're going to play the fucking scientists. I don't know. Send us a, a, a cat into space. And the Chinese hear about it. And they're like, this must be one smart cat. So they try to get their own cat going into space. And there's a space race to see who can, and everyone's, <laughs> and there's a gravity thing with like ping pong balls and the cat's floating, banging the, the ping pong balls. And everyone realizes these cats aren't that good enough to go into space. The Chinese kidnap the cat because they're like, this must be the smartest cat in the world. And then they realize this cat doesn't know shit. So they let the cat go on the streets and we get the cat back. Anyway, whatever. So 
we go into Miramax to the head of production. Now, this is Miramax when they're at their muscular peak. They're winning Oscars like crazy. And the Jack Lashner is like, what do you got for me? And we're like, open on NASA. A cat <laughs> walks by. And he's like, are you? He goes, are you guys fucking with me? And we're like, no, you said, you said, do, you said, you said, do a movie about a cat in space. And he goes, I said, what the fuck are you? We're not going to do we're gonna, we're gonna Harvey Weinstein with a cat in space movie. We're like, no, no, we're just, yeah. He said, come up with a new idea. And we're like, okay, fine. And you just, it took you forever. You break the story, you've beat it out. You've got your act break. You're like, this is it in five minutes. Song and dance, got the whole thing down. The whole, everyone had a part. And then finally we just go to a wedding on the Vermont border and we're driving home. Uh, we're like way up on the border, Lake Averill. And we're driving home and we drive by some kids who've been pulled over by the Vermont police. And at the time, gangster rap was huge. Uh, and so, you know, it was all these like white kids in basements saying, yo, fuck the police, right? All that shit, right? Uh, like you'd see that at like parties and you're like, all right. That's going away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, and and um, so we dr- we're driving by these kids and we're like, it's really funny how what how white kids are so, you know, fuck the police trying to be all street. And then when they get in front of the cop, they're like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. And so we thought, oh, that could be maybe we could be the cops. And then we're like, oh, there's no crime up here in vermont maybe they mess with people and we can do pranks and that was sort of the beginning of that idea and we wrote that script for miramax driving back from the border the end of it harvey weinstein read it and jack leshner was like it's gonna be a green light guys it's gonna be a green light and harvey reads it and he goes i mean everyone says it's hilarious but i'm not very good at figuring out what's hilarious so i'm not gonna make it but I am going to let you have it back. And he goes, which is really generous of me. And I said, well, okay. So he said, good luck. And then we went on a two year odyssey of trying to get everybody else to finance the movie. About every single comedy person in the world was attached some point, right? Bob Simons, the Fairley brothers, George Clooney was a producer at one point. We would walk into these rooms and people were like, who's going to star in it? We are. And who's going to direct it? He is. And they're like, Fuck you. See you later. Which is really, we went to every independent financer and they were like, it's a good script, but you guys aren't going to be in it. Uh, one of them was like, I'll give you the money, but Ben Affleck has to play Thorny. And I'm like, that's my part. And he goes, not in this picture, kid. And I'm like, but you had already gone through the, the pilot process of, you know, that kind of serves you, right? Because you already saw it didn't work when other actors were doing your guys' roles in chemistry. Yeah. yeah. That allows you to stick to your guns. I didn't get in the business to make some role for some other guy. I wanted to do it, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, we were role. kind of like, at this point, uh, Eric Stolhansky had moved to L.A. to basically go, well, if this is not going to work out, I'll just go try to be an actor. And Lemmy, Steve Lemmy and I were also moving to L.A. Kevin had a law degree, so he was going to stay in New York and be a lawyer. And I was packing up the Broken Lizard office, closing it down in New York, when the phone rang. And it was, we struck out on every independent financer, right? The phone rang, and it's my friend Cricket Langell. 
And she goes, look, I know you're sort of in show business, she said. Uh, and I'm like, barely cricket, barely. And he goes, but my dad's an investment banker and he retired and he wrote a script. He's, Would you mind talking to him about reading it or something? And I'm like, sure. Because cricket was is a total fox. And I'm like, I'll do anything if this could lead to something. So I'm like, uh, I mean, so... I get on the phone. I'll read your dad's script, baby. (laughs) I'll read your dad's script. I'm sort of in show business. I get on the phone with her dad, Pete Langell, and he's now, he goes, so you guys uh, write funny scripts or something? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we've written a couple. And he goes, oh, I wrote one too. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I I really don't want to read this script, right? But I'm like, okay. And he goes, why don't you send me one of your scripts so I see if it's even worth getting your opinion? So he's auditioning us to fucking read his script. And I'm like, cricket's really hot. I'm going to send him the goddamn script, right? He's probably looking at it, too, for like, where does all the spacing go? And like, how does dialogue fit? What's the format? (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't reading it. So I send him the script. uh, And two weeks later, he calls me up and he goes, funny script. And I said, oh, thanks. And I'm waiting for him to say, I'm going to send you my script. But he goes, what's going on with it? And I'm like, well, I mean, we're, we've are we kind of given up at this point. Like, we're moving. Oh, uh, Kevin's not going to be in show business anymore. I'm like, well, we're raising money. And he goes, how much you need? And I said, a million two. And he goes, all right, let's do it. And I was like, What? <laughs> So, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, I, I don't even know. If he's, I don't know. So I go to my producer's office. I'm like, there's a guy who wants to give us a million too. Yeah. And my producer's like, bullshit. A and million I, two is just specific enough. It's like a million's too general, but a million two million sounds two. like it was thought out. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's it. That's how we made the movie. We made it with a million two. I mean, a million two six. I put 30 grand in and my producer put 30 grand in, in credit cards. And Kevin was rescued from a life of reading legal briefs. It was, yeah. Oh, I just think of all the uh, clients that are so thankful, Kevin, that you didn't become a lawyer. And I guess they would have had a lot of good laughs in the, uh, in the courtroom, <laughs> I think. A funny lawyer. You don't. Those are two things you don't want in the same profession. A guy with a legal degree who likes to crack jokes at the yeah. audience of a like I would crack them in law school and the professors would be like, no, this is not the place. Yeah. We're a literal medium here. Sorry. Kevin was a paralegal. He was a paralegal for uh, our friend Andy McCormick, who um, is a good friend of ours from Colgate, who's a lawyer. And so Andy hired him as a paralegal. He, Andy was a lawyer at this place. And we would all go out till four in the morning and get absolutely just wasted, right? And in the morning, Kevin would have to go to his job and he would walk into Andy McCormick, his our fraternity brother's office, and he'd be like, Andy'd be like, all right, get under the desk. And Kevin would take a little cat nap under Andy's desk <laughs> while Andy would be up there working, you know. And then he'd come up at noon and be like, okay, I'm ready. Give me some files to do something. <laughs> Yeah, lawyers would walk into his office to talk to him, and I was like hidden behind the on the floor, just sleeping. That's how you learned habeas corpus. Yeah, that's where I got my, my legal chops. Those first couple jobs out of school, man. I mean, it's just a disaster. You're trying to transition into the real world. There's structure. You have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, I worked the transportation for the uh, Atlanta Olympics, so we were in charge of 
it was like a logistically, it's not something you can just pop into. You're in charge of moving thousands of people around. There's judges, there's international athletes. It was this group called ACOG, the Atlantic, the Atlantic committee for the Olympic games. So it was like very official. And we were all like 18 and 19 years old in charge of dispatching buses to these events. And they gave, um, they took drivers, taxi drivers from all over the South and brought them to Atlanta to drive around. No GPS, no satellite. They gave everyone linear maps. Like here, here's where you pick up the person and here's where you drop them off. And we're in a tower with like microphones and walkie talkies saying, okay, bus from blue two, you're going down to peach tree road. And then the Olympic bombing happened and they ended up closing off a lot of the streets. So the linear maps became like obsolete because once the driver, once the street was blocked, the driver got off the road and he had no frame of reference of how to get to where he needed to go. So we started when we're in the tower over the radio, hearing all these tragic stories about like the shot put thrower who trained their whole life for this event, showing up five minutes before they had to uh, get the shot put or the Korean judges not being able to get to the diving competition because they couldn't get, they were like lost somewhere in Buckhead. And it was just a bunch of idiots in a tower trying to navigate these drivers back to their events. <laughs> and they just hired eight year olds because it was fucking cheaper. Is that, what, is that what it came down to? They were just hot. Yeah. Like they just started employing anyone for any job during the Olympics and plugging them into places. And you didn't give a shit. You were going out drinking and whatever it was. We were out all night yeah. and we yeah. would show up or we worked the night shift in the tower and we'd be, you know, just like hanging out in the tower, drinking beers and smoking <laughs> and having fun. But there was, so, it was, I mean, it, to me, the stakes felt like I was in uh, like an air traffic control tower. Yeah. That was like the setting, <laughs> but it was a little lower because there were just buses <laughs> lost. <laughs> so you guys go super troopers. You keep doing it. You make you quasi is now the latest yeah. of what started in in that when Jay was competitive with you, Kev, being the funniest guy. This is now <laughs> we're on the yeah, same right. team, but in my view, if I'm being really honest. People, people are a little more excited to see Kevin than they are me. Just a little. I can hear him just a little louder. I'm like, I, I can true. still feel it a little funnier, a little funnier. I, I know nothing about Quasi. Uh, I only heard that you guys were making it. And I heard you directed it, right, yeah. Kevin? Yeah. That, that's a first for you guys to do a movie where... Second. Uh, Kevin directed the film The Slammin' Salmon. Um which is our waiter waiting tables movie. Yeah, that was about 10 years ago. Well, no, was it 15 years ago? Jesus. With, but uh, yeah, I directed one, one in the past. So this is number two for me, for Broken Lizard. But we were, to, you know, we were together on all the films, um, you know, sort of prepping them. He was prepping every single one of the... I mean, how many films have we made? Eight? Seven? We've made seven proper Broken Lizard films. You know, we've done... And then a stand-up special. The stand special, and we've done obviously other things. Tacoma like, was more recent, but that was something that you and Steve did, yeah, uh, or you directed those episodes, yeah, yeah. But basically, yeah. he was with me uh, as we were prepping Super Troopers Beer Fest. Like he was just, we were there, we were together. And then, more importantly, though, is we'd go into the edits together, and we would we would cut these. We'd hire an editor, but we would, 
you know, the way to become, in my view, a, a great comedy director is to sit in the editing room and actually, yeah. you know, like watch all the footage and write this this take right here has a funny look from Lemmy and this take has a great little riff from Soder and Stolhansky and you put it all together and then you then we sit in that room and we just would go god this fucking director which was me at the time just framed this a little too tight and now the shot sucks and we would just right. get mad at me and we would and and the anger makes you learn Right. It makes you go mm-hmm. next time. I'm not going to fucking do so, so tight, you know, and you makes you learn and to get, you know. And so when it was time to do the slam and salmon, you know, he was just fully, I thought, fully ready. That was, yeah, that was um, what, 2008, I think it was. We made that one during the strike. Yeah. But this one, we, you know, we had written this film quasi back the same time we wrote the Super Trooper scripts. So we wrote it like 30 years ago or whatever it was, 25 years ago. And it just been sitting on a shelf, and it was just this kind of goofy movie that we based a, a, on a character that Lemmy used to do, and he used to have this like guy that he worked with who was this lonely, sad kind of guy, and it was this character he started doing, and then he turned it into this hunchback character that he would do, and so we're like, fuck it, we should write, you know, write this movie about this thing. So we we wrote this movie about this hunchback who gets into this conflict with the Pope and the King. And it just sat there for like 25 years, you know, and every once in a while we take it out and we dust it off. And it's like, nobody's going to do a period piece with us and nobody's going to, you know. And um, and then after Super Troopers 2, we had this little kind of window where the studio searchlight was like, OK, let's make another Super Troopers. Well, what do you guys what else do you guys have? What do you have in the meantime? And we kind of dusted the script off and said, hey, we got this one, you know, you know, never thinking that someone would spark to it because it's this. It's a fucking, you know, it's people in in robes and shit. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fucking period piece in a in medieval times. I, I've been describing it as like a twelfth century French political thriller with a lot of blood. Yeah, and 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 fart jokes, and so um, you know, the studio come back and say, "Wow, we really love this," and um, and so uh, we kind of fast tracked it, uh, and then you know. Lemmy had a window um, uh, between seasons for our show Tacoma and Jay was working on Easter Sunday at the time, his film. And then um, it just kind of, we, we rushed it into production and, um, and I think we put one over on him and um, you know, they gave us the opportunity to shoot the thing. So we, we did you guys shoot it during whatever this phase of COVID we're in? Like, it was the it second surge. So it was uh, yeah. 20 for, uh, 2021. It was the fall of 2021 and that was Omicron. part of it. It was the Omicron thing. Yeah, that was part of it in that, you know, uh, I think there was a lot of challenges to production. And and basically we had our whole TV crew and they were sitting on the sidelines waiting for the new season to start. Right. And literally we just said, let's take, you know, locations and every production design. And all our people were sitting there. Let's just move them over and we'll make this movie and, you know, shoot it in, in six weeks. And so we did it. So we put these wigs on and these robes and we went up to Santa Clarita and built a medieval village and we shot there for six weeks. Like to be able to do that during that time, you like I didn't see a lot of friends for that first year at all. And just to get back into a production element with the whole crew was, must have been awesome. It was, it was great. And, you know, it was also a movie, obviously, that we had written for a while and had been talked about trying to make for years and years and years. And it was in this vein of Monty Python where it was like, you know, 
hey, you know, people know us as the Super Troopers or Beer Fest or whatever. Let's do a movie where we play multiple characters, which we do. We all play multiple characters in the thing. And let's oh, do a movie where we have silly accents and wigs. And uh, so that became an extra really fun thing to do amongst us, I think, like, you know, to get out right, there. There's, no, there's not been a period piece like you do a whole you develop the whole world. Yeah. You're in a medieval village with costumes. Yeah. So it's we built we built a medieval French village in Santa Clarita and we kind of banged it out. And um, and the studio ended up loving it. I mean, it, it has a different kind of vibe to it. And uh, then Super Troopers, for example, you know. I, I think. Uh, and so what, what is it? Is, where is it living now? What, when where so, is it coming uh, out? We made the deal during the pandemic. And so, you know, there was no thing, no such thing as a theatrical release then. So we made this deal with Hulu uh, where basically Searchlight is the studio and they have they had a kind of a deal with Hulu. And so um, on 420, which is our and was our, you know, Super Troopers 2 uh, uh, date also. We own that date, 420. Uh, yeah, gonna, Michael Bay has the 4th of July. You right. guys have 420. Have <laughs> so it's going to uh, it's going to premiere on Hulu uh, at four on 420. The world can it's see it. Good, and then, it's a good weed smoking movie. Um, <laughs> well, look I mean, this. look. Yeah, the, the, come on, look at that. The, I mean, Steve Lemmy's a like a peasant hunchback. You know, I play the King of France. Uh, Kevin plays the Hand of the King. Paul Soder plays the Pope, and Eric Solhansky plays the Hand of the Pope, to whatever that is. So you guys, you've been working together this long. When one of you comes up with a character, you're like, "All right, I'm going to play the Pope like this." Is it by committee, or do they have like artistic license? Does, all right, no, that's, it's a little that's both. It was both. definitely a little bit both. Like you know, they had something they wanted to do. You know, like like Soder wanted to be a white-haired guy. You know. Like he wanted to be one of those kind of like uh, almost albino-y kind Albino, of. Albino, yeah. You know? And uh, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea. I mean, you know, we, we read the scripts out loud and, you know, and people work on their characters and we'll sit around a table and we'll, you know, you know, hey, why don't you try this or maybe this accent? I mean, Lemmy, you know, his character as a hunchback was hard because he had multiple ways that he could go. He could go with a French accent. He could go with, you know, whatever. And he, at one point it was a lisp, of course, you know, and then, you know, and so uh, we kind of settled on this kind of Alan Arkin, or no, not Alan Arkin, um, uh, Peter Falk, kind of a Peter Falk imitation he does. A Columbo and, uh, vibe? Yeah, it's got a really kind of like, like this kind of a thing, you know. And it took a second for us to, to settle into that, but, you know, it, it ended up, you know, working really well, but it took a while for him to find that. And, you know, we were all working together with him and figuring out how to do the, what, you know, what the voice is going to be. And, you know, that kind of stuff. Let me, you know, in my view is the best actor in Broken Lizard. Um, like he's, he's got this natural charisma that somehow could make this like odd mouthed hunchback Peter Falk imitation, kind of really kind of sexy and cool and fun. I just think he's great in this movie. I really am like, you know, and yeah. it's amazing because the character was a guy he worked with at a record store who was, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the own, in the guy's own opinion, he goes, ah, oh, it's a hot a summer in New York city. And I just sitting around in my apartment, sweaty, losing again, no girls want to go out with me, I guess. So I'll just sit here for all summer and sweat. And you're like, and he would do this invitation. You're like, God, that is so funny. And so he turned him into a hunchback. Yeah. 
Didn't you talk about, uh, Jay told me once that some of the guys would take, as you guys were making the movies, guys would take acting classes at certain points. Yeah. And, and you could see you guys like, try, you know, pulling out, it's a technical thing when you're pulling off jokes in films and you start doing it, you get known for it, you want to get good at it. And then you start trying to learn something that you've already been doing naturally. Yeah. That's a tough thing to do in front of your friends. It wasn't, you know, some of the guys, you know, they were talking about, you know, and I think Stolhansky or somebody did it like after the fact, going back and taking like improv classes, you know, (laughs) despite the fact that, you know, we've been doing that for years in our own way, you know what I mean? But just wanted to learn the the craft of it so that maybe you could bring something more to the table. And then, you know, you get into the, (laughs) into the rudimentary improv class and you're like, ah, what the fuck? Yeah, I've, I've already been doing this on film. <laughs> Stelhansky took um, acting classes before Club Dread, and I think turned in a hell of a fucking performance in that movie. Um, but he pushed me to go to acting classes with the same coach, and I'm like, all right. So I go, and she, and I'm reading the lines that I wrote with all these guys, and she goes. I'm not sure the joke is there. I think it's here. And I'm like, I'm out of here. I mean, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. What are you talking about? And I'm like doing this poncy British accent. And I'm like, she's like, are you sure that's the accent you want to do? I'm like, I get, come out of here. Yeah. Fucking, we, this is useless. Although, uh, this movie, we did have a dialect coach. We did have a dialect coach. And uh, yeah. they worked with everyone so that their, their British accents were somewhat respectable no oh, that's gonna save you a lot of flack you I, I could just see the twitterverse going crazy the the, Dis, the disney executives were very sensitive to the to our hunchback uh oh how he's how he's played sure yeah because but he's a hero right like he, he's the hunchback hero in our movie disney's made a movie called you know the hunchback of notre dame so you know they could they eventually got their minds around it they sent us uh, examples of things we could not do so that we did not tread on the animated hunchback like the color of the of the, his wardrobe uh and that kind of stuff you know so they oh, wait, from like an ip perspective yeah. they, yeah, also, they have like, that character it's also they like own... an internal thing where they didn't want one division of disney to be making fun of another division of disney so it was like don't tread on you know this our our hunchback our animated hunchback movie is iconic don't tread on it. Don't make fun of it. Oh, wow. That kind of a thing. And yet, you guys, you know, we did that uh, that little, that real clear homage to the animation in when the hunchback is outside the bar and he's feeling blue and he looks in the water. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's his reflection and then he just wipes away his own reflection. It's like, yeah, it's right out of the cartoon or animation. But did, wait, I, I'm trying to think, Disney they were associated with this film too, or they, it was just, well, Disney, I mean, not to get wonky on you, Hayes, but Disney and, um, you know, kind of bought the film division of Fox. Right. So they bought, uh, so they, so searchlight, which we had worked with for years for super troopers was always on the Fox lot. And now, uh, they have been kind of bought by Disney and now they're on the Disney lot. Uh, so, uh, they have all the 20th century stuff over at Disney. Yeah. So, so our sorry. bosses who used to be Fox are now Disney, which is a whole other thing, which is like, you know, not offending the mouse and, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, you guys are just messing around ha- having this idea for a movie. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with like major IP lawyers and studios. <laughs> well, Disney, it's it's now um, 
going to be it's going to be Walt Disney's Super Troopers three. <laughs> it you laugh, but it is going to be that. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get that little logo and all that stuff. But the Magic Castle, I don't. But you know, they'll fucking you know they're going to eat Hulu and it, you know all that shit will be through the Disney you know the Disney portal. That's that's full circle. When you're going around offices trying to get the initial thing made, you wouldn't even be able to get a pitch at Disney. Yeah. Now they're going to do. You know, one of the funny things also is you know without giving anything away from the movie, there, there's a scene in the movie with a scrotum. And, um, and so we made this, um, we made this prosthetic scrotum and, um, the day we shot that scene, it, it just happened to be the day that the studio was visiting. And, uh, we had the two presidents of the studio on the set and, um, while we're shooting the scrotum scene and they were so happy to be there and they took the scrotum and they posed for pictures with it, draped it over their shoulder <laughs> Uh, there are all kinds of these funny, and it's like the heads of these studios. Really, when you get down to it, they, you know, that's what they want, right? Right? <laughs> Disney affiliation. They want to take a picture with a scrotum as a joke. We were worried, and I wasn't in that particular shot. And so I was told that presidents are coming, run interference so that they don't really see the whole thing happening. But I couldn't really keep them away from the set. And so we end up there, and I'm like, ah, well, sorry. And Kevin is directing the film, is you know involved in the scrotum scene. And I'm like, oh, this is the first time they're seeing him on set. And I'm like, oh, this is bad. This is bad. But they loved it. But they fucking loved it. They loved it. They loved they, it. They, that was their favorite picture. Yeah, I mean, Searchlight loves a good period piece. I think that's what it comes down to. You know, they like... Uh, you know, they like putting a movie in Europe. They like turning the clock back, you know, you know, they, that's their thing. So we, we were we were happy to get the chance to do it for You're sure. Right in line with their award winning, uh, reputable films. That's what we're doing. I don't know how that one got through. I, I feel that that place especially would be so scared. I don't well, the, the way it got through is that we make money for Searchlight. Uh, as, as much as so we great. would typically be looked at as these like R-rated body filmmakers, we're not the problem over there. We make money. And so they're like, well, if we make another mo movie with these guys and they make money, we can make, uh, uh, you know, we can make Enchanté 2 or whatever. Right. I mean, you know, they, they make some great movies. I'm just sort of kidding, but you know what I mean? They can fund some of these more um, artsy films with the receipts of our films. They were making movies at the time like Quills and Le Divorce, movies like that, you know, and, and then they bought our movie and we're like, what the fuck? So we've always kind of been their redheaded stepchild. Yeah, they never they never really had the poster up in the early years. They would never, you know, even though we made some good money for them, but they wouldn't put that poster up. And and I think they have it up now. They might have two up now. So, you know. Not at Disney, man. Not on the Disney lot. <laughs> Not on the Disney lot. Um what 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 can you tell us about Tacoma FD season uh, four? We just finished. Um, we're, we just finished season four, and um, we shot. Um, let's see. Last year we finished in the fall, and then I've been in post on it. So, uh, and we just finished. Uh, we did thirteen episodes, and um, they're going to air this summer. And we haven't gotten the date yet, but um, we're anxiously awaiting our date. Um, but um, yeah, they're all in the can. They're all edited. And um, ready to roll. 
So a lot of people have been concerned okay. about, you know, if we're doing more. I don't know if we'll do more, but we've got a whole season in the can ready to show people. You shoot them all at once? Yeah, we shoot, we shoot a kind of like film. We, we spend about 16 weeks. Uh, it takes to shoot about 13 episodes. And so we just – we kind of do it in chunks, you know, since – Lemmy and I are, are on camera. We're in kind of every facet, directing on camera and writing, whatever. So we, we take about three or four months, then we write the whole season, then we shoot the whole season, then we edit the whole season and try to avoid kind of overlappy stuff. So, um, yeah, so this, so this particular season we finished shooting in September, and then um, um, we've been editing for six months on it. So, um, Have you found the fan base of, uh, with Fireman? Uh, like you did with the police officers where you get approached on the street or they're hip to it and they want to talk to you about the show. Oh yeah. It's huge. They love it. I mean, uh, you know, they, they have a different thing like the, the cops, they have a different thing. Like firefighters have a thing where they want to, they always want to lift you up. They want to pick you up like physically, <laughs> like I'll, I'll be walking on the street like, and they want to grab you and they want to lift you because that's what firefighters do. The, the, and the firemen carry it over like, the oh, shoulder. Stop. Don't. And um, we went uh, we went to an event up at Tacoma, and we you know part of our f- our our show is about you know this, uh, central to it is is a woman in a f- in the fire department, which is an unusual thing. And so we met all these women firefighters, this group of women women firefighters, and uh, we were at this party, and they wanted to lift me up, and they were like, "Let's go, we're lifting him up!" And I'm like, "Don't fucking don't lift me up! You, I tell you, I know how this goes, you know." And so. They did. They lifted me up. We have a picture. They lifted me up and posed for pictures. And this poor woman, I could just feel, she was like probably under this part of my body trying to hold me. And I could Very feel wet. her. I could feel her starting to shake, you know. And I was like, you can don't. And, but they, they just wanted to pick you up, you know. Um, but these guys, they're, they're great. You know, they're, there's whatever, four million firefighters in the United States. And they've become like these, like, avid fans of this, of this show. Because it's like super troopers in a sense, like, Cops, you know, people like to see you portray them as funny people that you want to hang out with. Well, also the element of the fire station, because I watched the first couple of seasons and the downtime that takes place. It's like you're in almost like an office job until that alarm goes off. It's a fraternity. And it's also like these firehouses. It's all family people. Like it's like cousins and brothers and uncles. So it's like this weird kind of family thing where everyone's very comfortable with each other and it, you know, allows for you to have to fuck around a lot. And I think that's what firefighters like, you know, you know, the Chicago 911s of the world or whatever it is, is like, you know, firefighters with soot crying, you know, that kind of stuff. And the muscular uh, guy, you know, whatever they want to see you pulling the prank on the kid in the fucking garage, you know? So that was really kind of like the focus of it. And it really kind of sparked with those, People. And then it ends up being endless stories. Like every time we meet a group of firefighters, they have like 10 great stories. Oh, they fire. give you the stories of oh, yeah. how they're in the, the firehouse. Yeah, how they're we hazing called this one on this guy. And, you know, we got we made this guy get a tattoo and whatever it is, you know, and they tell you because <laughs> they're fucking crazy. They're, they're crazy people. And they tell you these stories. And like, wow, Jesus. That's like. Did you episodes. guys ever do that joke, that guns and hoses joke? No, the. um was it a, we, we've had cops and uh, we've had cops uh, firefighter rivalry every season, but we never did that guns and hoses thing was a hockey. I think it was a hockey tournament, right? Where yeah, the, it was a hockey the, tournament between the cops and the yeah. firemen and they called it guns and hoses. Yeah, um, no, we, we, we did softball and boxing. We did a boxing against uh-huh. the cops. Um, uh, but, and um, we got all these great 
Tacoma actors in Quasi. Uh, but it was also it was that funny thing where like we were in between seasons and everyone was just kind of hanging around waiting. And it was like, well, you, you have, well, come do a part on this, you know? And they would show up and there wouldn't even be a script for them, but we'd have fun. Every one of them has a trailer moment, which is kind of funny. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun to act with, you know, obviously I'm not involved in Tacoma FD, but I look at it and I'm like, I think I'm, if I were in that show, I'd probably be in that Gabe part. And I was like, <laughs> and so I'm acting with Gabe in these scenes where, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is the guy I might, would have maybe, I might be, I would have played that guy. Yeah, I mean, Eugene is, I mean, obviously he was in your film. and, and yeah, uh, Eugene Cordero was in Easter Sunday and then he's obviously in Tacoma yeah, FD. Yeah. Um, but he's like he's, other level funny, you know what I mean? He's like one of those incredible. guys. Yeah. One of the many fun elements of making Super Troopers 2 with you guys was having uh, Brian Cox on set and looking at we'd be hanging out at the hotel lobby after a, a long shoot day having beers and laughing and yucking it up and he would come into the hotel and we brian come over hang out with us and he'd go, good god no i'm going to bed <laughs> <laughs> now i know I, you know he was a lovable curmudgeon and you know since then you know he's had so much success on succession since we shot together with him right. you know and it's kind of like you know tough getting him on the phone the funny thing is he's he does uh, our narrator character in Quasi. And um, and uh, it's the kind of a little Easter egg where we have this kind of narrator who leads in and, and takes you out of the movie. And uh, in that kind of storybook way, you know, and we were trying to figure out who, who to do it. And we ultimately were like, let's try to get Cox to do it. But it's like, oh, he's so busy and he's hard to get right. in touch with. And so I sent him an email. And I was like, you know, hey, Brian, and I sent this, this really nice, hey, we would love for you to do this voiceover. It won't take much of your time, blah, 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 blah. Never heard back from him. Never heard back from him. Uh, he never responded. And then we get a call from his agent who said, uh, you know, he would spoken to Brian. He said, anything you guys want, he'll do it. And in my mind, I'm like, why don't you just fucking respond to my email, Brian? Right. Why don't you do that? And uh, – but regardless, we, he he came. We he, we got him in a studio in New York, and he you know now he does like McDonald's and Virgin Atlantic, and he does all these voiceover work. You know, right. we got him on a day where he was doing a stretch. Essentially, he he took a flyer on you guys, you know, years ago by being in that first one. Yeah. It's your first film. He's an established stage actor. He's Uncle Argyle. He's in huge stuff. Yeah. He comes in and plays the captain, and and. So when Super Troopers 2, he, he's just like, it's a miracle that everything's still going on. He yeah. comes back in. He comes back into play again. He's like, I can't believe these idiots are still going. I know. And he loved it. And like, I remember talking to him the night of the premiere of Super Troopers 2 in New York. And he had such a great time. And he like never, he never watches his own movies. He's one of those guys, you know. But he sat through the screening and he had laughs and he had a great time. And I think he's a little bit charmed. You know, he enjoys the comedy because he doesn't get to do straight up comedy. Right. And I think he enjoys that. So he did this. So we got him to come do this voiceover thing. And he was so curmudgeonly. He was on the phone. I was here. He was in New York. And, you know, we're talking like this, you know, and he was so curmudgeonly. But in a kind of a lovable way, he made fun of everybody. He ripped everyone. He did his voiceover in like, you know, 10 minutes. And then he was out. First of all, we did the voiceover because we were trying to... um Sort of, it's like an homage to the Highlander, right? You know, you have your your voiceover pull you in and take you out. You know, they do it in like Conan too, like they do. You know, Brian, you know, we we he approached us to be 
uh, Captain O'Hagan in, in Super Troopers. He, because he always thought he was going to have Jerry Lewis's career when he started. And, no, <laughs> and nobody, and then he got cast as Hannibal Lecter in the original one. And he was like, now he couldn't be in any comedies. And then he did Wes Anderson's movie, but he was had a stroke. So he was kind of barely really... Uh, and so we were looking at that. And we're like, I don't know, is this guy funny? And we're like, man, pretty funny in this thing. But it wasn't super clear that he knew his way around a joke. Um, at that but, time, you wanted any kind of reputable actor to give. Well, some yeah, we, we had actually remember we tried the first, the only other guy we tried was Bill Murray. And we said yeah. uh, we called Bill Murray's agent uh, who, you know, whatever at CAA. And we, we said, and she goes, I got the script. And I said, okay, so here's the offer. And it's like uh, 75 or a hundred grand. And she goes, that's not enough. Uh, and she goes, and I said, just get him to read it and, and see what happens. She goes, great, I'll get him to read it. But here's how Bill works. He calls me from a payphone once every six months. If I'm at my desk, I get to, hit, I get to talk to him. If I'm not, it probably going to be another six months. So yeah. let's hope I'm at my desk in the next, who knows, six months. And if he calls, I'll offer him your 75 grand. And then we'll wait for him for about a year and a half for him to read your little script. Mm. Or you can move on right now. And I yeah. was like, <laughs> and so then, and then Brian Cox is like, I'll, I want to do it. We're like, yeah, okay, fine. Let's go for it. Like that's arguably why Brian's so funny in the movie and with you guys because he's yeah uh, he's playing a drama. I mean he's not yeah. trying to be funny. He's frustrated. The stakes are high. He's he's tired of of your antics and same way he was in the lobby and on set when he was hanging out. <laughs> it's just the same relationship, but you're filming it. He's like he's the adult in the room. Yeah, and and to a certain degree, he made us look legitimate. Like we're in scenes with Brian Cox and I think people must have been like, I guess these guys are legit then because he's legit because these right. guys, I don't know. I'm sure. And that's how it kind of, we, he raised us up. And I think what we did for him is we just put him into a comedy space for people to go. Yeah, that guy's a legit comedy guy. And I think together we all, you know, that's why we all split all that McDonald's voiceover money. Right. Kevin? Yeah. But I, well, I tell you, I mean, like uh, he says, you know, he gives to, to the credit of Super Troopers. He says it's, it's kind of the most, you know, up to Succession probably now. It was prior to Succession, he was the thing he got most recognized from. He said people would stop him on the street for Super Troopers, and and you know he was always very kind of proud of that. And then I think when he came back to the second one, he elevated us again because he had he still had more stature yeah, than we had. And, that was uh, right. Uh, succession was coming out. Yeah, too. It was in the born supremacy or born ultimatum X-Men and, you know, you know, after Super Troopers. But the reason we really loved him is Uncle Argyle. Oh, yeah. First, you learn how to use this. Then you learn how to use this. Whatever that was. Yeah. Yeah, So good. So good. We shall have to remedy that. Yes. I've written um, my uh, a friend of mine, Kate Angelo, and I have written um, half of a Scottish golf movie. Um, that turns into sort of the hangover kind of thing. And uh, and Brian Cox is, I mean, I'm going to ask him to to 
to be in that movie. I, I've told this story uh, before, but uh, on, again, on that Super Troopers 2 set, that night in uh, the conference room uh, where we were shifting from shooting days to shooting nights. Right. And we really, you know, wanted to, we had to stay up all night because we wanted to get on our, our sleep schedule. Originist history, I feel like. <laughs> We're so dedicated to to making the, the product. Sure. Yeah. And uh, we ended up um, staying up all night in the conference room. We uh, we didn't trash the conference room, but we thought it would be funny if this uh, actual conference, there was an insurance conference in town at the Westin, if, if they came into the room for their morning meetings and right. it was all trash. So we, we slowly, we slow trashed it. We slowly... Right put staged the chairs it. on the table. We staged it to make yeah. it look like we had thrown the chairs all over. And one of the things that came out of the, uh, that night, which I, I still tell, I just told last week, uh, was we did the uh, Danny DeVito. Somebody in the room at some point made the joke that they didn't know that the same Danny DeVito from Always Sunny in Philadelphia was the same Danny DeVito from Taxi. Yeah. And it was just in this maelstrom of madness that someone had mentioned that. And I didn't know that well, one of you guys like was in the corner taking notes <laughs> about that particular bit. And two days later, I showed up for work and I saw the, the pages for this new scene that wasn't in the Super Troopers 2 script. Yeah. And it was we were going to shoot a scene where these guys didn't know <laughs> that Danny DeVito <laughs> was really in. Right. Yeah. I mean, that never that never happens on a, a project that's already going where you make space for new scenes. It was not in the script originally. And yeah, it was... I think it was built over like two nights and it's it was. that night. And then the next night it was like, yeah, I remember like we would hang out in the parking lot of the hotel and people would drink, you know, beers and have a joint or whatever it was. And um, I remember we were all standing around and we were talking about the Dan DeVito thing that had happened and like riffing even further on it. And, uh, and then, yeah, we went and we just wrote it out. Cause you know, you always want that chuff, you know, you want that downbeat of what you guys are talking about when the action starts. Right. And sometimes that ends up overwhelming, you know, the actual narrative elements of the scene or whatever. And so that was that situation. And I, we were shooting that and we were having fun or whatever. And, you know, those are those things where you're watching. You're like, that's not going to be in the movie. That's definitely. Not no, it's not on the story. Too. In the, we were in the edit room. We edited that scene together. And we're like, this is a really funny scene, but there's no way it's going to stay in the movie. I mean, it's got nothing to do with anything. It came out of nowhere, <laughs> out of madness. It's my favorite scene in that movie now. Because you get so angry and, you know, Sasso eggs you on so well. And, you know, it's just, it was one of those kind of, you know, beautiful light, lightning in a bottle moments, I felt like, that, you know, comes out of oh, nowhere. So I fun. mean. And those guys being Canadian, Tyler Labine and Will Sasso actually being Canadian and doing a French-Canadian accent. Because yeah. they had the beef with French-Canadians themselves. They wanted to make fun oh, yeah. of French-Canadians because they're not... They're, they're just Canadians and that, yeah. there's this whole thing. So they wanted to send up the French Canadians and every time Will would do that accent, I would just fall over laughing. It was it's so good. And you know, it's funny. Cause like, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember, he would do this thing where you would, you'd start him and he would go, he could go from each like time zone or each area of Canada, like from West to East, from Vancouver to Nova Scotia and do like six different accents. Right. You know, down the line, and he just go bang, bang, bang. It's like Vancouver, Winnipeg, you know, Toronto, and he would just switch the accent, and you're like, holy fucking shit, that's so genius. 
And so um, when he would find that accent in there, and it's in the bloopers, he, w- he would try to, he'd have certain mouth things that he would try to do in order to find that accent. He'd you keep doing that kind of shit. And it just became so fucking funny. Right. He was like, it was like, it was like a lawnmower being tuned yeah. up. When he, was, he, was like, ah. he was going through every region to find the one that he was yeah. doing. Yeah. He yeah. sent me a video of the prime minister of Canada who somehow was a French Canadian at some point. And he goes, this is the accent I'm going to do. I'm like, all right. He goes, you're not going to understand a word I'm saying. I'm like, well, okay, but we have to have certain words. And I'm like, okay, we'll try it. We'll, and he goes, I'll set up jokes, but those are the only things you're going to understand what I'm really saying, the setups for jokes. And I'm like, okay, fine, fuck it. I mean, fuck it, right? You can see it where it would be like, oh, you know what? It's too thick. I can't understand a fucking word you're saying. Yeah. And then he would just pull back a little bit or like hit like a few certain words specifically so you could understand what the sentence was or whatever. Yeah. Danny DeVito... Uh, the reason that whole thing came up was because I told the story of how I had run into him at the Directors Guild of America dinner. Every every year, the feature film, they have a feature film dinner. You should go to that, Kevin. Um, yeah, and, yeah. you know, I met John Landis there and I met Ivan Reitman and I met Todd Phillips. I met, you meet everybody. Everybody's there. Um, and, you know, Dan DeVito, his company, Jersey films is the producer of super troopers in mostly in name they put their name on it so that pete langell would give us the money he's like i'll do it if dan devito puts his name in the movie so he puts his name in the movie they weren't really involved in the development or the you know you know they're just you know nominal producer and so um which we appreciate uh and so you know, and but but I'm the one who signs the Super Troopers checks because that's just how that it was. We were I'm like I every year I sign these two checks. I signed Kevin's check. I signed my own check. I signed Dan DeVito's check. I signed John Langraff's check, who's the head of FX. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm writing this guy checks, right? I mean, big checks, and. And I've run into him in the bathroom of the DGA event. I'm like, I'm not going to talk to him in the bathroom. But then I come out and I'm like, hey, Danny. And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, it's Jay Chandrasekhar from Super Troopers. And he goes, and I'm like, you Jer- Jersey Films? And he goes, oh, yeah, I produced that picture. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, a lot of people tell me I should see that movie. This is 15, 16 (laughs) years later. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm writing this motherfucker checks. And so uh, I told that that story. And people are like, well, we should put a scene in this movie that mentions him so much that he has to see Super Troopers 2 just to find out what the scuttlebutt's about. Yeah, I wonder if you've seen it. I wonder if you've seen it. I, I love Danny DeVito. I love the guy, but I was like, let's get him back. Let's get. Let's now, get. Him. Hey, do you take any grief because you played a Canadian Canadian and you aren't a Canadian, and those two guys were really Canadians? Because you didn't do the French Canadian accent. You did more like the. It's, it's yeah, like I did the uh, more of a kind Great Lakes accent, kind of like a Chicago. A Chicago a great Lake. I, I found a lot of people from Toronto sound like Chicago. Yeah, 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 yeah like Wisconsin, Toronto, Chicago. It was like the Dan Aykroyd, uh, you know, the Dan Aykroyd. It was the Dan Aykroyd, and then listening to a lot of. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite things are these post-game hockey interviews yeah, when yeah. you hear the hockey players talk, and yeah. those guys just have a classic way of, of talking. So I was just ripping, <laughs> ripping hockey players. 
And did those guys give you shit for for you know faking your Canadianism or no? Uh, I, the, well, that the only guys that gave me shit were Tyler and Will. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They were. Uh, I was. Uh, yeah, that was a big leap for for me to play a Canadian. I was like, you guys have been playing Americans, Australian actors play all our superheroes. I mean, come on. <laughs> I think you did a great job. I think you did a fucking great job. It's my, it's, I mean, I would say this about all of you guys, but you're my favorite Canadian Mountie. Now I temper that because I would say that to Sasso and I would also say that to Tyler, but you guys are <laughs> right. fucking great in that movie. I don't know what to tell you. Like, yeah, just, I love that fucking, I love those, that trio. Super Troopers came out. Okay, we were at Sundance. We were the best. We were the only film to sell for a week. Everyone's talking about our movie. We were like the darlings of Sundance. We sell the movie to Searchlight. Everybody loves us. The screenings, three midnight screenings, everyone's like having a ball. We're like the next big thing. A year later, the film comes out and the New York Times gives a pretty bad review. Uh, and then the other reviews come in. Oh, they're largely pretty bad. Third, we get 35% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I am fuming, right? I'm like, they what? I mean, we killed at Sundance and these fucking... And I'm like, who are these mother... Who are these reviewers? Like, do they smoke weed? Do they like R-rated movies? Do they... I mean, how do we know what... Well, there's no context here. They just, they're just people who are good writers who have jobs at newspapers. When we made Beer Fest, a movie that got a 36% fresh rating, one of the reviews was from a woman who had a site called Grandma's Reviews. And Grandma out of Arizona was like, I didn't like Beer Fest because I thought there was too much drinking. And I'm like, Grandma, it's an ode to binge drinking. I mean, what are you reviewing this movie for? And why are we getting dinged on your little review? Oh, because her review is factored into the t Rotten right. Tomatoes algorithm. And right. so at that moment, I'm like, I'm getting revenge on these motherfuckers at Rotten Tomatoes. I'm getting revenge. I cannot. I didn't know how. And so 16 years, I stewed on this fucking thing. And finally, I'm like, I'm going to make an app, right? I'm going to make an app. Um, and, and I started outlining this app, right? And the, and the app, uh, I eventually met up with these two guys who had had the same exact idea, but for Amazon and Yelp, they're like, who writes these Yelp reviews? Who writes these Amazon reviews? And so the, the premise is it's basically the Instagram of recommendations. It's, it's called vouch vault and you can get it on the app store and the Android store right now. We've, we've been up and running for about five months, we got something like 9,500 people. Um, and so the premise is, if you guys follow me, I will vouch for, um, you know, a movie I love, a television show I love, uh, a documentary I love, a restaurant I love, a song I love, a band, anything I love. So if I don't love it, I don't vouch for it. I don't put it in there. And so you can, you can, instead of Wondering what the New York Times guy thinks, who you don't even know if he smokes weed. You don't know if he likes R-rated movies. When I say I like an R-rated movie, you're like, well, he also liked Caddyshack and he also liked Animal House and he also vouched for The Hangover. I think I probably understand that I'm going to like this movie, too. It's the curated everything. And it's, you know, it's recommendations from people you know and trust. Not only celebrities, but your friends. If your friends, like a group right. of friends, it's like those text chains you have. You know, that go back 20 years, you're like, watch this 
movie, right? And then you're now you're on Friday, you're like, oh, what movie was that? And you're looking through the text chain. It's all in this Vouch Vault app. So, yeah. Well, I mean, when you go on to one of the streamer websites, Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, it just looks, it's overwhelming to navigate what to watch. It's an endless library and you're presented with one show or one movie and people usually just click on that. It's hard to get deep on the content to figure yeah. out what to watch. Yeah. And robot, you know, your friends, you usually it's, it's word of mouth, right? <laughs> yeah. It's word. it's word, yeah. We're, yeah. We built sort of a word of mouth machine that where you're like, I trust this friend. So I, I'll read this book, you know, instead of some robot at Netflix saying the robot thinks you're going to like this movie. And I'm like, you know, I don't think I will. I don't know. I don't know if I trust your sense of humor, robot. But, you know. You watch one fashion makeover show. Right. Boom, let me tell you. Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or your wife watches it on your account, and now you're fucking swimming in. You messed, yeah. up. You messed up my algorithm. Um, uh, so, yeah, so Vouch Vault app is, is you know, is, is sort of sponsoring our show. Um, and so um, we're going to ask, you know, I'll start us off. Okay, there's a song um, that I'm going to vouch for, and it's by this woman named Little Sims, S-I-M-Z, and she did a song called Point and Kill, and she does it with this African guy named Obengiire, and it's super kick-ass. And we're going to play that um, in in the edit of this. We'll play that song, and now we've heard that song, and I'm like, well, that's a pretty good song, right? Uh, uh, and okay. So this movie I really like is, uh, it's called a futile and stupid gesture. It's starring Will Forte, our old buddy, Will Forte, uh, Kevin, who, who, by the way, we chugged, Will Forte went to USC or UCLA, UCLA, UCLA. And this dude can chug a beer faster than everybody in Broken Lizard. Isn't that right, Kevin? He beat us all. Yeah, yeah, he 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 doesn't have a good um, uh, stamina, but he has. He's like a he's like a you know he can hit hard and fast. But he, didn't last. Um, he didn't last. But a futile and stupid gesture was uh, directed by David Wayne, uh, who is a really talented filmmaker. He made that um, he made that great film about the uh, spas that J- uh, Jennifer Aniston and, and Paul Rudd were in. It was called. Wonderlust. I love that movie. Uh, but David Wayne made this movie, Feudal and Stupid Gesture, about um, the founding of uh, the National Lampoon. It starts at the Harvard Lampoon, uh, right. and the, 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 the real person who went to Harvard, his last name is Kenny. Um, and he graduated, and they go to New York City. They make the National Lampoon. Out of the National Lampoon comes... National Lampoon Radio, and then from there, Saturday Night Live took a bunch of the players from National Lampoon, like uh, Belushi and uh, O'Donnell, who's like one of the writers, and you know Chevy Chase, played by Joel McHale, my buddy Joel McHale, and and then they decide to make a movie, so they make Animal House, and then they make Caddyshack, and all of this is in this movie, and it's such a it's such a good. You know, if you're a comedy fan, this is a great movie. This is a really great movie. Yeah, I saw I saw it. I mean, I read the book, which was really great. I read the book yeah. many years ago. And it's about Doug Kenny, yeah, who, who um, you know, basically kind of started National Lampoon. 
um, or you know r- helped it rise to prominence. And you you can see he I think he like he died young, right? Didn't he die young that guy? Well, he uh, yeah he died. Uh, uh, he f- he fell or jumped off a cliff in Maui. Yeah. He was yeah, going yeah. out there to try to dry out, and he was going to dry out with Chevy Chase, who was his buddy. Yeah. And I think Chevy um, and Chevy was the. He, I think he always said he was the worst guy to try to dry out with because he was a heavy cocaine user and 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 a drunk. So I think they didn't dry out. He's in he's in Animal House. He, he's a, he plays that character Stork. You know, it's like, what do you think we're supposed to do, you moron? You know, he has yeah, that. Yeah, line. yeah. He's. It's, Doug Kenny plays that guy. He was, you know, this guy. Doug Kenny. Comedy writer, yeah. And I believe that's on uh, Netflix. This movie, I rem- this movie came out a couple years ago, right? Yeah. It was, yeah. On, it was a Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was one of the first kind of like, not first, but like when Netflix was doing original, started doing original right. movies, um, it was kind of in that in that camp. And it had a lot of, you know, a lot of people playing these kind of cameo, uh, or not cameo, these real life you know, characters, which was kind of fun, I thought. Well, I've got a couple things to vouch for in different categories from Mike. I just was thinking of stuff that I was uh, into right now, but uh, in the vein of, of comedy and content and period pieces like Quasi, I've been watching History of the World Part 2 on Hulu, which I they release them uh, two at a time in consecutive days. Uh, and I watched all of them straight, laughing the whole time it's in the vein of obviously the the first history of the world um but it almost feels like mr show a little bit they've got their interweaving characters and you're following long sketches through throughout uh, multiple episodes and they killed it and i couldn't imagine a bigger rock to push up the hill than taking on mel brooks <laughs> history of the world to remake it yeah and it, it's just it's fantastic and super funny and Did, so didn't many you great say that Mel Brooks demanded that it look like the original? I was uh, I think the one caveat I was talking to Ike and, and Dave about it and Ike Baron Holtz and, and Dave Stassen, um, two guys I went to grade school with. Uh, they, I'm like, you guys are doing the Mel Brooks. You're doing the movie that like made us all laugh. Yeah. Uh, I think the one thing that they, that they had was it had to look like the original sketches in the film. It had to look like the original film. And it's just so great. It it just all came out. And uh, yeah, I watched the first episode. I I laughed a lot. There's there's, cause there's so many great people in it. You know, it's Sasso's in that, in that first episode I saw. Right. There's a lot of great people. It's funny cause I, you know, for us and guys our age, I mean, I think the, that movie was very seminal, you know, for me, certainly, where that like when cable first started and that history of the world would play over and over again, you, we would watch it and we would quote it. And it was that, you know, that kind of a movie. And my son is now that age. And, uh, you know, for me, like when I watch history of the world, it's like I think of it through the t- context of that movie and it's Mel Brooks and it has that vibe of Mel Brooks, you know. And um, it's not it's not like new to me, you know, but like to him, this was like a what, you know, like. And so we watched it together and there's a great bit with uh, Kamel about the Kama Sutra. And, uh, you know, he was just fucking laughing his ass off because that, you know, seeing it through the eyes of a 14 year old boy, you know, was it was really fun to me, you know, which is what I loved about it. And and he yeah. fucking loved it. You know, he, he laughed his ass off at it. So 
it had that a great was... vibe, a great, a great living vicariously through, you know, remembering what it was like to be his age and watching that. It was fun. Yeah, but, it, but it's new. So like when I yeah. show my son and daughter old movies, I'm going into the old stuff. They're like, all right, this hasn't, this isn't happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that it comes back around, it's like, they feel it's yeah, this is his era. This is his, you know, it's right. his time, you know, which is great. Uh, that was a great sketch. It was Karma uh, uh, Supra. He was pitching yeah, a Karma Supra. Soup <laughs> yeah. Pitching a soup company. <laughs> yeah, with the Karma Sutra. So he'd have soup in in, in sex pictures. And they love the idea. They say, yeah. "Can we lose the soup? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we lose the soup?" And that's how the <laughs> Karma Sutra came. We'll just take this to sexual positions. Yeah, <laughs> Karma Sutra. <laughs> And it goes on. I mean, it gets even deeper when they, they go back into the sketches of the Civil War and you're following them around with the treaties. It, it's just, yeah. it's like a little bit when I show my son, it's like a history lesson for him. He hears about, you know, characters in the Bible or generals in the Civil War. And he's like, oh, wait, you can make fun of these guys? <laughs> uh, and who directed those things? They're kind of like sketches. You know, it's kind of a sketch show put together, right? But I think I... Did I didn't I direct some and yes, Stassen, Stassen uh, directed a lot. Yeah. Uh, I I think maybe Nick Kroll was the first one uh, to to get uh, the project, and he put together a bunch of funny people, and they they all wrote it and did it together. I like Nick Kroll. Uh, what, what else? Uh, do you have another one, Hayes? You vouched for something else? Uh, what, you don't have oh, to. Uh, uh, yes, a cool story. Uh, my friend during the pandemic started a pretzel company, like <laughs> like big giant pretzels with salt on them. Love them, and it's like okay, it, it, Shappy's pretzels. It's like great. Yeah. He's got a I'm side hustle. He's he's a hilarious actor and performer. His wife's a great actress, so he starts Shappy pretzels. And good for him, you know. I'm following around. I had some. They're they're great, you know, and. Hadn't had a new pretzel in a long time. Felt like a, an open lane. And then I was just watching uh, the award ceremony, the movie award ceremonies, and I'm following Chappie on Instagram. And everyone at the Oscars had a pretzel under their seat. Really? <laughs> And yeah. it was his pretzels? It was his pretzels. <laughs> wow. So like he's getting he's getting like interviewed on, on the red carpet and his, his wife, Katie, at a a hilarious phrase. She's like, well, I guess I'm the queen of pretzels now. I'm like, what a great thing to be a queen of. Amazing. I, I love to try Chappie's pretzels. I, um, we were sitting around the dinner table the other night with my kids and they were, you know, they're kind of, you know, young adult, teenager kind of ages. And they were going through this. What, what would be, if you were stuck on an Island for the rest of your life, what, you know, three foods would you have with you? You know, whatever, S silly little. And I said, pretzels was one of my three foods. And my fucking kids went crazy. They thought that was the dumbest thing that they'd ever heard in their life. That that of the three foods that I would bring pretzels, I love pretzels, that I would bring pretzels. They thought that was an incredibly missed opportunity. And they well, made I love that you pick pretzels because it's the thing that makes you the most thirsty. And if you're on an island, sure. fresh water. I didn't think about that. But the thing is, I never get tired of pretzels. Right? So like I'll get tired of other food, but hard salty bread. I mean, who gives a shit? I mean, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. 
That's I'm going to try that. How do we find those Chappie's pretzel? It's an LA company. I think he just went on gold belly. He reshaped them too. Cause why not? Like, why is a pretzel shaped the way it's shaped? So I think I it's in some form of an S or I'm, I've got to ask him why it's shaped. Like Are they C's now for chap? Like what, how, what are you shaping them? Yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of a, a S shape to them. And okay. Yeah. Kevin, you got one. Um, I just binged. Um, did you guys watch Tulsa King? With Stallone. With Stallone. I haven't oh. seen that. Uh, everyone says it it's is, really good. It's fucking great. Uh, I watched it. Uh, I binged right through it. And um, uh, it's on Paramount Plus or whatever. And it's it's Stallone as a mobster. And he gets uh, he gets released from prison. And he gets assigned by the, the, the mafia to go run uh, uh, an operation in Tulsa. And so he goes out to Tulsa. And he starts to try to put together uh, a mafia operation in Tulsa. And it's it's really fucking great and funny. And it's got some friends in it. There, you know, uh, Martin Starr's in it, who's a friend of ours, is great. And yeah. Andrea Savage is great. She's in it. It's got this great cast. And um, it's just, it's funny because, like, I, I, I love Stallone. Um, and he, but he has a certain flavor, right? Stallone has a certain flavor, right? So... And you've this is a like a new flavor that you haven't really seen of Stallone. Like, I feel like when you watch movies, you always are wanting a little more. Like in this, it's Stallone. Every scene, happy, sad, finding his dreams, crying, beating people up. There's so much Stallone in it that it just makes me really happy to have that much. And he's fucking great. But um, it's just a it's got comedy and it's got you know some action and some ass kicking and you know I, I what, fucking love what it. made me pause and now that you've you've described it i'm gonna watch it but what made me pause was if you remember tango and cash which we've seen yeah something like 7500 7, 7, yeah. times uh stallone was going through a period where he's like i don't i don't want to play a tough guy all the time you know so he was yeah. trying to play like a a, a banker in that movie yeah, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a he's a pulled together guy. Yeah, yeah, he's super cut, and he's an investment banker, and he put up pair of little glasses on, and you're like, well, he's a banker, I guess, and you're like, you know, we 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 always made fun of him a little bit for pretending to be a banker, and so, but I, we love that movie, love that, yeah, movie, right, and that's um, like what it is, and whatever you think of, like, so they lean into it, right? So like, he has that certain look now where he's kind of like. It's not plasticky, but he has that kind of a look and his hair is dyed and whatever, but they don't care. They lean into it because that's his character. And so he's right. not trying to hide anything. I was worried that he was going to try to do a Tulsa accent. And I'm like, I don't know. Is this going to be a, the banker thing again? So I'm like, yeah, howdy, y'all. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get into that. But now that I know he went out there as a mobster. He's a guy from Brooklyn and he's uh, – it's a, it's a great character, and um, you know he's he's charming, and he's he's kind of interesting, and you know I, it's it's I, I think Stallone like one of his best movies is Copland. I don't know if you guys remember Copland. Right, where he that was uh, Yeah, and it was like you rooted for the guy in that, you know, yeah. and, and in this he he has some elements of that in that you're rooting for a guy who has some flaws, but he's a tough guy and a badass and can solve any problem, kind of a thing, and. Um, it's good. It's really fucking good. It's very bingeable. 
when you look at Stallone's career, the first Rocky, have you guys seen the first Rocky in yeah, a while? I, yeah, I rewatched it. A movie he wrote and starred in and direct no, not directed, but but wrote and started. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And, and it's it's so slow. It's like a, a true independent character. Yeah. It's a talky, it's a slow, talky character piece. Very little fighting until yeah. the end. Yeah. <laughs> when you look at what Rocky's become now. Yeah. It's a to- it just like. It's like a happy meal now. Or whatever, you two know? was an escalation. Yeah. Three was. A- and now we're in like nine. And I think yeah. they're doing like Japanese anime fighting in the new Creed. Okay. It's become a whole other universe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but when my son turned 11, uh, he was a rowdy boy. All his boys are boys. And I had a movie theater that was uh, this old kind of opera house that had a screen. And I asked the camera guy, I was like, hey, can we show a movie for kids here? Guy's like, sure. So he invites 18 boys to his birthday party. And he just met these kids. And I say, what movie do you want to screen for them? And and that's a big question. That's a Absolutely. lot. Of, so I'm trying. Like, he's like, well, I don't want to do something new because we could already see that in the theaters. And so I showed him the trailer for Rocky Four. Just, this was like last, this was last December. That's the Drago just based one. On, the Drago one. That's the Drago one. And it was also before the real world Russians were bad guys again, right? Yeah. Like the, yeah. they had not, well, people paying attention knew they were the bad guys, yeah. but they hadn't invaded the Ukraine until a couple months they, later. They've been keeping <laughs> it together. They've been keeping it they've together. Been, oh, no, the Cold War never It wasn't Cold War. Fucker. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Cold. We thought right. like, oh, we're friends. It's over. They're like. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> They're hanging out in the corner. Yeah. So I show him the trailer. He's like, absolutely. I get the, we get the theater. We're, we're watching the movie at the end of it. I'm like on the, it's just so much punching. Rocky yeah. four is oh, all yeah. punching and patriotism. Oh yeah. They, they charged the stage and were un, not, they didn't know people did this when it came out a million years ago and we're chanting Rocky, Rocky. <laughs> so great birthday party. It's such a fun time. My, uh, my son says to me afterwards, he goes, wait, but dad, one thing, I don't get it. Like, are, were the Russians bad guys? <laughs> and, and then this was, this was yeah. December of last year. <laughs> but that has, it has such a cold war vibe to it. Like there's a speech he makes at the end. He's like, I thought things about yous. You thought things about me. Yeah. Then we come together. You know, that was like a. You know, if you can change, yeah. if I can change, you can change. Yeah. We all can change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucking great. It was a piece. I, I feel like the CIA must have financed Rocky Four. It was a piece of propaganda. Propaganda. There's a little bit of propaganda. I loved all that propaganda. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I love that movie. It was great, and hopefully we can make, we can make the Russians bad guys in uh, the state of Russia, not the people. But they should be sure. bad guys in movies again, right? Sure movies were better when the Russians were bad guys. Period. Period. Yeah, those those Wagner guys, you know, make those guys the fucking bad guys. Yeah, right? yeah, it's great if the Russians are bad. Or guys. like that that we went through that phase of like nebulous foreign enemies where there was no nationality. We were right. just against right. bad people right. of the world. Right. No, we need. Yeah, because nobody wants to be the bad guy anymore, right? And you're like, come on. Yeah, no, not with trade agreements tying us all together. We can't have a real bad guy. <laughs> How are we going to sell the movie over there? But luckily, the Russian market for movies is zero for us. Yeah. <laughs> so we can make them the bad guys. When, when the Chinese, though, you can't make the Chinese the bad guys because we got to be making a lot of movie money over there from the fucking Chinese, right? You got to tint, you got to tint the tint the windows in the in the plane so you can't see the nationality of the pilot. Well, what's his name? Uh, Dan. 
Dan Bradley, who was the second unit director on um, Dukes of Hazard, he shot all those incredible car chases. He got a chance to remake Red Dawn. And the original bad guys in Red Dawn, I mean, it's a, it's like a kick-ass action movie. Uh, and Dan Bradley is the greatest action shooter in Hollywood, in my view. Uh, but he made this movie and the bad guys were the Chinese and they shot it. And they're like, wait a minute, they can't be the, can't be the Chinese. And then they switched them. I, I, I don't know. I don't have this quite right, but I think they switched them to the North Koreans. And they're like, well, they might hack us. So then they switched them to like a non-specific group of bad guys and they got rid of all the markings on the and you're like what is going on we just should have chose the russians when they were sitting there the whole time wasn't that the thing about tom cruise's flight jacket and top gun it had a a a patch yeah and then what did they do they well was it it was a taiwan i think it was a taiwan patch right so they they wanted to take that get rid of that incredible Incredible. they put it back in like no That, that's where he drew the line. Yeah. Maverick wears the Taiwan patch. <laughs> I might as well tell the story and then we could end it unless you got anything else, Hayes, of how uh, we started calling Kevin Queen. I uh, He referred to as Queen when we were getting the equipment set up and I, well, I'd heard him call you that, Kev, a million yeah. times. Never once occurred to me to ask, how did you get the name Queen? So- well, there seems to be some dispute on what the story is, but you know, Kevin and I will tell because we're both there for the whole fucking history of everything involving our movies and everything. So we both, but we both have very distinct versions of the same story, and it's like Robert Evans says in his great in his great book. There's, um, uh, what is it? It's it's uh, there's three sides to every story: yours, mine, and the truth. And they're all true. And they're all and they're all true. That's right. Uh, so um, we were juniors at Colgate University. We we're living in our fraternity house, Beta Theta Pi, and uh, it was the winter. Um, and I went into the bathroom, and Kevin had come out of the shower, and so he, he it was the middle of winter, and Colgate's winters are just snow. So he had no. He was as white. He was like a sheet of paper white. You know, he hadn't seen the sun in six months, right? And his hair had come out of the shower, so it was all tussled up in a big kind of bouffant kind of look, right? And there was steam in the on the wind on the mirrors, and he had this royal blue towel which he had was wearing above his nipples, and I was like, "This, this, this!" I said, "You look like you're the fucking queen of England getting out of the shower here," and. So I and I told some other guys that are like fucking Queen England over here. And we suddenly this fucking this nickname took off like a rocket. And it, and he became I mean, he quickly was not the Queen of England. It was just Queen, the Queen. Uh, and then it just went all I mean, it went out. The like graduates of Colgate were calling him Queen, like the pledges were calling him Queen. I was at his house in Connecticut. And his mother's like, Queenie, will you get me a beer? And I'm like, what? This is incredible. His mother. And then his father, he comes up to me, he goes, you know, there are certain connotations to the name Queen. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. This is the Queen of England. And he goes, and he kind of walks away. And I'm like, no, it's the Queen of England, sir. It's the Queen of England. He's a judge. It's Queen of England, Your Honor. And he goes, ah, I don't like it. But uh, anyway, that's that's why we call him the queen. The way that I remembered it was more that um, 
there was a guy ahead of us and he was the president of a fraternity. We used to call him the king, right? And then he graduated. And then I became the president of our fraternity. And as a joke, they started calling me the queen because I was not the king. I was, you know, the queen. I remember all that and, too. And I may, think... The whole thing may have played into that, but that's yes. really kind of weird. And so it started as a fraternity nickname. And, you know, with fraternity nicknames, the more you fight against it, the oh. worse it becomes, right? So yes. couldn't couldn't fight against it. So, you know, I resigned myself long ago to not worry that much about it. Yeah, when Steve Lemmy is laughing hardest, he only calls you the queen. Yeah, he goes, I mean, shut the fuck up, queen! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does it too. Yeah, he does it all through the shooting of Tacoma, and so then... You know, the crew starts calling you that on Tacoma. And you're like, okay, hold on a second. I don't even know you. Just hold on. In that, in that capacity, I can tell people not to call me certain things. Right, you're the boss. Yeah, but not in, you know, broken. Call you queen broken. behind your back. Yeah, behind my back. I can't make t-shirts. Uh, for the Slam and Salmon, the Grip crew made a t-shirt, a queen t-shirt, when we were shooting Broken Lizard movie. The Grip crew did a picture of my face with queen on it. So... I consider that nickname to be my greatest accomplishment. Ah, okay. <laughs> I guess we'll leave it at that. Thank you for okay. being our first yeah. guest ever. I mean, my God. You guys should call yourselves the Wood Background uh, Podcast. Maybe that would be better. Well, the Wood Background, you pointed that out. We Jay had to get a different colored wood background than I, and I had to get a different colored wood background sure. based on just our skin tone. Yeah, Contrast. your complexity. Yeah. Contrast. Absolutely. I like I your wood it. background a lot. Uh, and I'm going to buy one of those too and see how that looks. Although I like the background I got, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll see anyway. Oh, Get by that. the way, by the way. Oh yeah. There's quasi 420 quasi 420 quasi. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, by the way, Hayes, I'm, where's your fucking mustache? Hayes, where's your huh? mustache? Where's your, my, I, I, where's yours? Wow. Kev, where's your mustache? I haven't. Yeah. Um, I don't like to shave it off as quickly as I possibly can. It's mustache yeah. tails, guys. We gotta have mustaches. Oh, Jesus. We'll okay, we'll digitally put them on. We'll put them on. Come on, like like Henry Cavill or whatever. Didn't he yeah. have a mustache? Oh, he had to take it, it off. He had a digital mustache. Got it. Right. Okay. All right, guys. That. Thank you. Later, guys. All right, boys. Thank you very much. Mustache tails. Mustache tails.